Graphic Nature acknowledges the Bunwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we record the show and pay our respects to Elders past, present and future. We also extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this podcast. Hi, uh, apologies for the interruption. Just a quick note before the episode starts. Between the time this interview was recorded and the time it was released, uh, Safta Ahmed's Still Alive notes from Australia's Immigration Detention System won Book of the Year at the New South Wales State Premier's Literary Awards here in Australia. An amazing achievement for Safta and another step forward toward ubiquity for Australian comics and their creators. And now on to the episode. Enjoy. Due to the graphic nature of this program, listener discretion is advised. Fighting for what's right, for justice, that's what a hero does. It is my opinion, without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation, that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. Comic books are pure evil. Satan himself condemns our children to the fiery depths of hell. How a particular tale can come to life in the mind of a reader is endlessly fascinating to me. We have found that all comic books have a very bad effect on teaching the youngest children the proper reading techniques. This balloon print pattern prevents that. I am not a villain. I am a victim. A victim of a society that tortured me. Vengeance will be mine. Will be mine. Welcome to Graphic Nature, a podcast exploring the inspiring world of comic books, the culture that supports it, the creators, publishers and people behind the printed pages and digital screens pushing the medium on into the future in Australia and the world. I'm Zoran Ilyevsky. On this episode, we're joined by Safta Ahmed, creator of Still Alive, notes from Australia's immigration detention system. Safta, thank you so much for coming in on the show and being a part of it. Welcome. Thank you, Zoran. Lovely to be here. Before we go into your into your history with comics, I do want to congratulate you on the news that Fantagraphics has picked up Still Alive uh, by way of 12 Panels Press to distribute Still Alive. Is it a worldwide distribution thing? or Actually, no. It's just, I think, in North America yep. um, and maybe Europe as well. But Australian distribution is kept by my publisher, 12 Panels Press. So Australia and... New Zealand, yeah, fantastic, man! Congratulations. Oh, thanks. It's an amazing work, and I, I did. Uh, I, I'm not too sure, and we'll get into it a little bit later. What the difference between Still Alive and the Villawood um, notes from an immigration detention center are, and so I do want to get mm-hmm. into that. But um, sure, I originally read Villawood uh, online uh, in 2000. And was it 15? 2014? Yeah, yeah, that's when it came out. Yeah, around yeah, then. I think so. I thought it was a remarkable piece of work, and and a particularly heartbreaking. I remember at the time, my mind boggling at, at the stories contained in, in Villawood. So congratulations on, on the success of Still Alive. And we'll revisit that. Oh, thanks. So much. No worries. No worries. Uh, we'll revisit that. So park that for sure. now. And uh, okay. let's, uh, let's talk about how you, how you got into comics. Like what was the thing that, that drove you over the edge and into the, <laughs> in, into the streaming river of comics? <laughs> yeah, I think everyone's got an origin story for how they fell in love with comics, don't they? Mm-hmm. For me, I was reading Asterix and that kind of stuff and yep. a bit of Tintin when I was a little kid. But for me, I think at the time that was more like an extension of children's books. I don't think I I don't think I got the actual bug for comics back then, even though 
I still love Asterix. But I think I think what really grabbed me was when I was in high school, there was a skip outside our high school, right. a bin. And news agents in those days, if they didn't sell something, they would take the cover off to get the return on it, but throw the actual issue away. <laughs> yes. That's what an old mate of mine used to do when we were kids. And that's how he used to get his comics. Okay. <laughs> he, he would come to school with all these comics with like covers ripped off and he would go night after night just checking to see if there are any comics in the bin from the newsagent around the corner from his place. Ah, smart. He told me which shop it was. Yeah. And I would ride down there on my BMX, go down, and I would be forever searching for these bins, looking in them and never found comics. Ah. Oh, Jesus, I haven't thought about that for years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they had all these issues of like, Women's Weekly and all the stuff that didn't sell. And I remember going through that skip and that was when I discovered a copy of Amazing Spider-Man, uh, which was drawn and inked by Todd McFarlane. And it was like, I think it was number 311, like early 300s. And bang, that was when it really hit me. I, was a, I became a huge Todd McFarlane fan and that was what really inspired me to make the trip from the Blue Mountains where I was growing up down to Sydney to the comic shops in Sydney. King's yeah. Comics and Comic Kingdom in those days and start collecting, you know? And so originally it was all Amazing Spider-Man and Todd McFarlane. I think what got me in was the frenetic detail, mm -hmm. you know, all the cross hatching and, and all the little, all the lines he put in his work. I hadn't seen anything like it. And I was like, wow, this is so ornate. This is so detailed, you know, it just, it just got me. So I was a big Todd fan in the early years. <laughs> So yeah, yeah. Back in, in the high school days, my friends and I used to raise money finding golf balls, like uh, adjacent to one of the golf clubs yeah. in the, in the blue mountains and resell them back to the, the players. And then at the end of the month, I'd have about 30 or $40. Holy moly. <laughs> that's lucrative. Yeah. For the early nineties, <laughs> that was pretty good. Yeah. And we'd make the pilgrimage down to Sydney and we didn't know anything about Sydney. So we'd walk from central all the way to comic kingdom and all around the CBD and not buy it's not spend any money on food or drink and just buy up a whole stack of comics. And um, yeah, they were magical trips, you know, wow. great memories wow. of, of those early days. And that was when I discovered Jim Lee really got into Jim Lee's yep. punish award journal issues and then I got more into, I was obviously, I was really collecting artists. I didn't really care too much for stories or writers or characters. Uh, and then I discovered Bill Senkovich. Uh, and back in those days when straight mm -hmm. toasters came out, that really blew me away. So I got a, a bit more into the sort of daring, formally experimental stuff. Ted McKeever also did Plastic Forks to stay in the whole kitchen mm -hmm. theme of alternative comics. That was amazing. Yeah, so I, I sort of became obsessed with artists and started collecting artists back in those days yeah, right. and still do. When would you say you kind of started warming or have you have you yet to warm to the narrative of some of the books that are out? Yeah, probably that happened later. So I guess I, 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 I in a way, I drifted out of comics as so many people did back then, yeah. I think, after high school. That was when I started going to art school and thinking about being an artist and and then I unfortunately adopted pretentious ideas about <laughs> comics not being real art. And, and, at the, yeah. 
And at the same time, that was when I think, you know, I fell out of love with Todd McFarlane. I remember looking at the early spawns and thinking, oh, he's just, to me, it looked like he'd collapsed into a sort of caricature of his former self. Everything seemed too exaggerated mm -hmm. and too sort of cartoony. And so I kind of lost interest and um, didn't take up comics again until about 10, 11 years ago. Wow. So there was a big gap in a way. Um, and I went to art school, floated around, tried different things in life, went to uni, sort of tried to be an academic for a decade or so, did a PhD. And then as that was ending, drifted back into art and comics. And that was when I finally read the underground stuff like mouse oh, right. and things which I hadn't read when I was a kid. Yep, yep, yep. That was when I probably had that stereotypical light bulb moment where I was like, Oh my God, you know, comics can do anything. Um, <laughs> and then, um, yeah. And then just started collecting again, really loved uh, the French graphic novel um, by David B epileptic, the one about his childhood mm -hmm. really got into that autobiographical stuff. And, and then I think that was when I read Alan Moore as well. That was when I discovered Watchmen and all that stuff, which was around when I was a kid, but I just didn't know about it. I was too green, didn't know anything, you know, didn't have enough money to buy a wide range of titles. So in the early days, I just stuck to my Spider-Man comics and a few other artists, but didn't really appreciate the writing side yep. of things yep 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 yeah. until I, later yeah, yeah i think i think that's i mean that's essentially that mimics my exact course as well it was okay <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't essential it, it was only until later and in, in fact there was a lot of the times where and even though i worked at a comic shop and i was i was around it all the time i think that also kind of fed into the uh, i don't need to read that shit you know it's ancient who cares? Uh, yeah. you know so it was all okay. yeah a lot of that really you know uh, some kind of weird backlash against the the classics <laughs> but, but, yeah but uh but i you know and i think it was yeah i'd worked for the comic shop for about 10 years before i read watchmen and uh any any of that kind of stuff and uh it was strange and mm. i think it was because you were you know by osmosis you ended up soaking in enough of the story to be able to recommend mm. you know particular types of books and things to people that a lot of them yep. never got read and it was only it was only yeah. in the later years of me being employed at the shop that i started checking out a lot of the classic stuff and just going well you know what what i just i'll just read them you know for for whatever mm. reason i decided to read them and and then uh, i was essentially convert after that um yeah but yeah i think it was it's it you'd be hard pressed to find someone because i'm assuming you're about a similar age to me that uh, didn't go through that similar thing of you know having your eye caught by by the by these amazing artists in the 90s and yeah. then uh yeah. later on actually gaining an appreciation for the medium rather That's than right. rather than just uh you know and kudos to anybody How out there yeah. yeah 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 and definitely that was a big part of early 90s comics culture right that was when the artists became the headline yeah sort of act in a way like todd mcfarlane went from Amazing Spider-Man to doing his own Spider-Man title, which he wrote. And that was like number one went nuts. And yeah. there was the whole speculator boom yeah, going on. Like and I got covers. sucked in. Yeah, I bought every damn cover. I think <laughs> I bought two or three of each, you know, and put them in plastic sleeves thinking they'd be worth a lot now, which they are. They're probably worth less than, you know, now I'm, I give them away for free. Well, I, I keep, I keep getting told that some of that stuff now is actually worth a bit of money because 
because oh, is it? yeah yeah well you know i could be wrong i could be wrong but like some of the <laughs> stuff that i bought in the early 2000s and the late 90s and you know i look at it with absolute disdain and go what you know what is this schlock that they were printing <laughs> they were printing anything they could put on paper back then but apparently that that all has some sort of value these days a lot of the kids are mm. searching for that kind of stuff and you know so again i'm yeah. on the back foot yeah, I guess, I guess, the, I guess for me though that maybe that was what pushed me away from comics because that Todd McFarlane Spider Man, even though I loved it at the time, wasn't very well written. You know, I look at it now and I'm like, well, the writing has not existed. <laughs> so, in a way, it kind of makes sense that you know there was intellectually there wasn't much for me to really grab onto. Whereas now, of course, comics are everything. You know, I just live and breathe comics, and I'm really excited about what they can do and and all the things that it, you know that other people do with them. Whereas yeah. back then, yeah, it really was just a marketing boom. You know, that yeah. kind of um, felt like they were flogging off a lot of really good artists, but the quality wasn't that high in terms of concepts or ideas, yeah. perhaps. And it, re- and it really depends, like you say, it really depends on where you were looking. And so, if you're lo- if True. you're talking about you know yeah. pati- you know having access to to a direct market comic shop um, makes a big difference in, in what you'd be exposed to in terms of reading and, or actually looking, uh, looking to uh, excite your mind and, and having someone behind the counter who actually knows what they're talking about rather than just being an asshole yeah. and just saying, Hey, check this out. Cause you'll love this shit. Yeah, sure. Mm. <laughs> uh, so, so you're, so you're digging it. You, you're, you're back into comics. What makes you make the jump? What makes you go, I've been a lover of this meeting for so long and I've just realized what I can do. I'm now going to, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to, I'm going to do something. I'm going to make a comic. Do them myself. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it was just this desire to be creative and to tell stories and realizing that comics were for me, the ultimate art form when it comes to storytelling, you know, in the way they combine words and images um, and that alchemy that exists, you know, between all the different elements that make a good comic, particularly when it's made by one person, you know, when it's, which, which is what attracted me so much to the underground stuff and independent stuff is the fact that that personal stamp is so strong and that has become really intoxicating for me. You know, the idea that you write it, you draw it, you do everything. Sometimes I compare it to, making a film except you're everything you're the one choosing the characters <laughs> yeah deciding the sets the lighting you know the Starring. script <laughs> yeah absolutely exactly so everything and yeah i guess the intensity of that singular vision is what really attracted me to try it myself and get into drawing my own comics um about nine or ten years ago um which was when i finally started to make very very simple baby steps towards, you know, creating my own stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just grown since then, basically. So leading up, it, now correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not too, I'm not too aware of the work you did prior to, to Villawood. What kind of stories were you, were you experimenting with before Villawood? Oh, not much. Um, I, my first real go was to do a very cathartic um, memoir thing, mm-hmm. an autobio thing. Which, um, which I put online. So it's, I think it's linked from my website somewhere. It's called The Good Son. And that was basically, at the time I was 
quite pissed off with my dad and wanted to exercise and go back into our childhood and talk about some of the issues mm -hmm. um, in my childhood. Yep. Basically, and, and these, this is a theme that I've returned to. So it wasn't just for that period. It's something I'm still working on now, I think. Um, and I guess I mentioned being very attracted to autobiographical comics. Um, and I really love making them because A, they're quite cathartic, but B, uh, the good son being sort of about domestic violence, having a very angry father mm -hmm. and how that sort of impacted on me when I was a teenager, because I had quite a serious teenage depression, yep. uh, episodes of self-harm, you know, being suicidal, attempting suicide, all of that stuff. When I was around 16, 17, um, it was good to sort of, yeah, go back to that because I think a lot of families are screwed up and dysfunctional mm -hmm. and have mental health issues, but it isn't spoken about. And in my own family, it just got to the point where I was really sick of no one talking about the past or brushing it under the carpet. And so there was this feeling of, you know what, society needs to face up to difficult subjects within families, issues of domestic violence or issues of, you know, um, bad parenting or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, The Good Son was my go at describing that life without turning my dad into some sort of ogre or demon, mm -hmm. a way of trying to understand, um, you know, what was going on for me back then. And, I, and as I said, I'm still kind of working on some of those themes for a longer work, which will be a future thing as well. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's cathartic, but that's not the only reason you do it. I think I see comics now as a really important way to deal with the issues that that I want to address, you know, like social issues or important moral questions, uh, basically figuring out the world, my yeah. place in it, and what is the meaning of life, which I think is the role of art, you know, <laughs> yeah, full yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, some people see it as, oh, you spill your guts just to feel better, but I see it as constructively you know, adding to the conversation around things which society needs to deal with as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, much, much like if you're in a room of people not talking and as soon as one person divulges something, it actually gives license to everybody else to be able to speak about their pain issues or likes, wants, uh, desires. I think, I think it's very important. Sure. How much, when you, when you said um, you didn't want to demonize your father in, in creating the book, how what level was he involved in was it just were you recounting things and then putting it in the book or were you actively engaging him at the time of creating the book oh uh, actually yeah quite a few people asked me that question didn't engage with him at all in making it because as i saw it it wasn't a collaboration right um and it was addressing stuff which isn't even for him you know, yeah, yeah, it's it. for other kids, other people who've been through similar circumstances in their lives or within their families. So I saw it as a act of communication for people who come from families like that. And in that sense, I don't think it's about, you know, vilifying him as an individual. It's about talking, touching on a universal problem, right? right? right. Or yeah. a very shared problem. Um, so that was how I approached it. Um, and I also do believe that he's the sort of person who didn't really care what people thought of him anyway and that if he had seen the comic we would have spoken about that mm -hmm. these he's still he's still kicking but these days unfortunately he's um he's got vascular dementia so he's not 
engaging enough to have those conversations, unfortunately. And that's been going on. That's okay. That's been going on for a few years. But we're very close. The, the comic was also about the fact that you can love someone, particularly in families, who hasn't always been perfect, mm-hmm. who hasn't always you know, treated you the best. Mm-hmm. But that's a complicated relationship. And somehow the love remained, certainly from his side, you know, and eventually from mine as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's about understanding that that you can have a very complex relationship with someone you know which doesn't always happen and i certainly you know understand that families break up and sometimes kids don't ever talk to their parents again and that's completely fine as well Mm -hmm. Uh, but for me it was about dealing with that complexity essentially so if he he could have read it when it came out but he's not online that much so he didn't Mm-hmm. If he did, I was quite happy to talk to him about it and ready for that conversation. And I believe it would have been a tough conversation, but we would have forgotten it the next day. You know, I don't think it would have been a big deal. So, yeah, essentially, he wasn't the audience. The audience was, uh, was right, other people right. who shared experiences. Yeah. And I guess that's tricky when you're a memoirist and you're talking about your own family members. It can be embarrassing, not just for dad, but maybe for my other yeah. other members of my family too. I do talk about it a bit with them as well. That's just the process of, you know, um, checking in as a courtesy, consulting with them. Mm-hmm. It's tricky because you don't want anyone to censor or control what you're doing, but yeah. obviously you're dealing with real lives. But again, as I as I explain it to them, and as I just said, I see it as universal stuff, mm-hmm. you know? Well, that's, that's kind of what I was getting at. It, for me, it was more about not necessarily collaboration, but were you know you you obviously now were talking to other family members about it as you were creating it to make sure that you know you you would be respectful and that they should understand that their part in the book and in the memoir isn't a judgment on them or their actions um it was just it was just it's just fact or that's the way you saw it and that's the way it's represented yeah. Exactly. Yeah, right. And it doesn't mean everyone comes out of it looking great. I think when <laughs> I do my own autobio stuff, I I know I've been a jerk and I think who, that should be a hasn't? part of the story. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know. But that also is what makes it funny and related. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, let's let's be honest, after I think I think uh, I I don't have enough extremities to count the amount of times I've been an asshole. Uh and and so, you know, I like to forget about it, but you know, you, you can't, you, you can't fault anybody for having moments that, um, yeah. Are, yeah. Well, particularly if they're, if they're not all that impactful to others. Actually one, just one other thing to say about that is I think that's what I love about even the Robert Crumb style of autobiographical comics. They can be quite uncomfortable, mm-hmm. quite self-revealing. And the fact that they are, very self-deprecating is what always really attracted me to them. There is that sense of irony that we are ridiculous, flawed, stupid, idiotic people. And that has to be a part of our story. <laughs> Every, anytime someone brings this stuff up, the, the first thing that comes into my, that pops into my head is Ivan Brunetti, you know, who oh, is sure. who, who's, whose yeah. work is, is by far the, the most I wouldn't I don't know if I could call it self-deprecating but it's yeah, it's, 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 yeah. it's it's um self-nihilistic maybe it's just yeah they're just miserable <laughs> absolutely yeah he's, he's so amazing and I've never seen anyone point 
so many weapons towards themselves um and and he's a celebrated creator he's he's a he's a Mm. he's a lecturer or he's you know he's he's you know he teaches comics and it's just i i just i find the whole concept of him showing his work to his students where you know there's one kind of panel that i saw of his where it's just him drawn over and over and over and over again. One where he's self-filating himself, um, <laughs> masturbating, stabbing yeah. himself, cutting his own dick off, stabbing himself in the eyes, oh, yeah. killing someone else. And it's just, it's <laughs> mind boggling. And, and from all reports, he seems like a very well adjusted man. And mm. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's, I noticed that too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I came to his work through the instructional thing he did on cartooning, you know, right. the educational stuff he did, and then realizing he was the editor, of, you know, one year of those best American comics anthologies, yep. seeing him as sort of as an authority and not knowing what his actual work was about <laughs> until I picked up an anthology of those miserable autobiographies <laughs> where he's just railing against the world and himself and and I don't even know if they work, to be honest. I don't even know if they're they're that engaging. They're just so turgidly awful yeah. and, and self-hating. And I thought, is this the same guy? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. It is it, his his work is just I find it so remarkable in that respect that uh, I don't want to mm. look at it, but I can't look away. It's mm. uh, it, it yeah. is it is that remarkable. Yeah. He's that he's that great of a creator. That that he yes. can do that work and and be and and be so honest, like so yeah. brutally honest. I find anyway. Yeah, yeah. You know? in the same kind of genre, I love uh, Julie Desset's work, her Dirty Plot. No, I'm, series, I'm not familiar with it. She did with Drawn and Quarterly. She's okay. yeah, she that's she's she also did some really amazing sort of early '90s underground autobio comics with a strong kind of feminist angle but mm-hmm. also really um imaginative like there's a whole issue where she recounts all her dreams and fantasies of having a penis and what she would do you know <laughs> if she was a dude <laughs> that that sort of thing uh and i lo- also love the binky brown meets the holy virgin mary which i know was a very influential early example of the mm-hmm. autobio thing which is essentially about ocd it's also about mental illness in a way mm-hmm. but before those things were sort of i guess uh, you know, categorized or as well understood. And it comes across as this book about religious obsession. He's like so uh, indoctrinated with sort of sense of Catholic guilt and consciousness of mm-hmm. sin that he starts to fear his own body and and the invisible dick rays that he's sending out into the world and that it might hit an icon or an image of the Virgin <laughs> Mary. And so it's extremely kind of goes into that neurosis but also it's just a, it's just brilliant you know just a, an amazing work yeah i must say that my my foray into into autobiographical comics was um through craig thompson's work uh, blankets that was the ah, first, okay the memory that i have of reading that book is really what pushed me towards uh, more comics of that type and uh was that blankets the blankets yeah sorry yeah blankets yeah okay yeah they're so remarkable and particularly the the the, the ones that have the biggest impact are the ones that where people are talking about the discovery of whatever issue, whether it be a mental illness, whether it be a physical illness and, and the way that they, there is no wonderful ending. 
There's no happy ending. Mm. There is only mm. the the explanation that this is an ongoing battle slash challenge that that um that people all over the world deal with. It just so happens that this one's in a book format and that you can read it. Mm. Yeah, um, sure. It, it is one of the most I find the one of the most remarkable things is reading a, a comic like that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love stories that don't resolve either. Because in life, you know, we like to consume stories that tie up in a neat little knot. But in in real life, it doesn't often work out that way, right? I, I think. Exactly. I think. Yeah. I, I think that's just a, a symptom of of uh, understanding that there is no resolution, and so that's the reason why for thousands of years stories have always had endings that are positive. I guess because. I wonder what I wonder what society would be like if all our narratives, all our fictional narratives, had dire endings. <laughs> what would? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah I, I don't even know if I want to think about it. Because <laughs> you can certainly see this day and age. I mean, you know, let's let's park narratives for a second. Just look at the news and and look at everything that we consume, particularly let's mm. say in this moment in time. Uh, I don't know about you, Safta, but everything I look at online or, you know, news-wise or, or read stories or even, you know, things I hear from friends, you know, it, it's not, not a happy time. Uh, it's not, mm. a, it's, it's, it's not, a, not a very happy time to be alive, really. And, and so many things yeah. are, are, have a negative skewer or, or you know, can mm. be seen in a negative light that it's – I don't see it doing very well for anyone's – health uh in any manner yeah i think i think that's something i think about a fair bit because you know the battle to reverse climate change for instance is a battle over narratives and how you can convince enough people that there is a genuine need to act on it mm -hmm. globally to ensure that we kind of you know protect uh our environment 20 years from now and that's a real struggle you know, how do you bring people into a narrative that they feel engaged with that somehow validates them and their values mm -hmm. and their reasoning, you know, for whatever their reasons are for rejecting or denying it or, or doubting it. Um, and it's more than just a bunch of lefties talking to each other about important stuff. It's about creating a sense of something that appeals to a wider range of people. And that's something I really struggle with when I yeah. think about addressing important issues is because I don't know if I have the tolerance or the patience or the humanity to always reach across and understand another person's values or where they're coming from. If their conclusions are very different to my own, you know, how do you engage? That's got to be one of the hardest things that any human can do. Yeah, definitely. But we sort of need that now more than ever. And it's, it's, whether it's about a happy or a sad ending, it has to be about bringing people in. And that's one that I really struggle with. Yeah. 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 Me too. Me too. I just, uh, you know, uh, all the, all the, uh, all the huge uh, affairs that are happening around the world. And, and I just, I don't know how to bridge. I, I don't know how to extend that olive branch in, you know, in particular situations I, I, like you, I, I I question my humanity or, you know, the level mm. of humanity that I have. I, you know, race was always an, a, an interesting thing for me because, well, as I came to realize many, many years ago that people that looked like me were fucking assholes and there were people that didn't look like me who weren't. And so, mm -hmm. you know, growing up a son of immigrant parents, but yet looking 
like I'm, I'm, you know, a uh, colonial descendant. Um, it was always a strange thing. And, you know, now I'm probably more able to see my privilege and what that actually brought me because basically because of my skin and where I grew up. Okay. All these concepts that have, have basically come to come to light in the last 10 years. Um, you know, mm. they were always there, don't get me wrong. But I think it was yeah. seeing it through the lenses that I can see now has afforded me a, a better understanding. Yeah, I'm glad you bring up this subject of race because obviously that was a big preoccupation underlying this, the whole issues that Still Alive addresses, yeah. for instance, which is Australia's policies towards refugees. And, and I guess when I was doing that book, I was thinking, how will this be read by people who've made their mind up and yeah. who don't? but, you know, want to accept refugees or who have very negative misconceptions about them. And a lot of that is driven by Australia's institutional racism yep. and the long history of rejecting certain people, right, going right back to white Australia policy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that book, I guess, tries to tries to address those issues. I don't know if it's very successful in terms of reaching people who oppose you know, um, a more humane kind of uh, treatment of people who come here seeking yep. protection. I hope it reaches some of those people, but I don't know. I, I, I guess I hope I'll find out. I'd like to know whether it resonates, yeah, across the board or not. But anyway, it tries to address some of those things, I hope, with a, in an accessible way, you know, and with a light touch, though it is heavy subject matter. So a lot of it is pretty Having said that, a lot of it is very heavy and dark, you know, yeah. it's addressing pretty awful stuff. It, it is, it um, is. But I, I, you know, I, again, I think that it, that's why it's so important. That's why I think your book is so important and supremely powerful and, and very heavy, but uh, equally hmm. as important to be, to be created and to be out there. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I hope so. Yeah. It's a tricky one. Hmm. We're, just to go back to what you said, did, so did you feel like you were an immigrant, but you looked Aussie and so there was some sort of, disjunction between the way people treated you and the way you felt or the way other I, immigrants I, say you were treated or one of my closest buddies he he looks like he's from another country but we're both born and raised we're blood so we look so different yeah. but yet that everyone will always think that i was i was aussie and then they would always kind of I... throw slurs at him and mm. and like to me that was bizarre because it was like hang on a second we're the same like what are you talking about yeah you know? I see. Yeah. And so it was, that was really, that was really strange. And I got that a lot of my life and, you know, I can move through, uh, particular communities. And even mm. though I was, I was ethnic, people didn't know that. I can't tell you the amount of times that I've been in places around Australia where, where I've heard people being, being disparaging towards anyone of ethnic descent. I see. You know, it's it's one thing for them to say it in the in the company of their own homes, but to not understand that they are talking to mm. someone who may not necessarily be as uh, dinky die as they are, and yeah. that yeah. that really made me so angry. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think people of color don't get like I mean, racism is many racists know that their ideas aren't widely accepted mm -hmm. and they need to keep it a bit under their lid. And, you know, so there's lots of subtle ways that racism is enacted, mm -hmm. you know? And so someone who's, who looks different, a person of color in that room won't often get the direct 
opinion of them. Mm -hmm. There'll be the little sly kind of sideways gestures and, and other ways of showing it, yeah, you know, yeah. which are never quite easy to pin down. A friend of mine said a very similar thing. She, she is of Turkish background, so she passes as white yeah. and she used to wear hijab and look like a Muslim woman and never really heard much directly in, in relation to that. But the moment she took it off and looked past for an Aussie and there were no visible Muslim, you know, signs or symbols about her, mm -hmm. all of a sudden she heard other women just talking disparagingly about Muslim women because they just assume she's on the inside, that she's one of them, yeah. that, you know, that she would probably feel the same way, yeah, it's, it's, which must be a very surreal experience, it's, like crossing <laughs> from, from one kind yeah. of, you know. It, it's it's, <laughs> it's pretty another. bizarre. Look, don't get me wrong, you know, growing up in the in the 80s and the 90s, it was it's a really strange uh, relationship that I, I have, let's say, with racism because uh, I would be lying if I said I, I have never said a racist thing. I'd be lying. Um, growing up, you know, you're in a, you know, according to your folks, you're in a foreign land. You need to stay within your community because it is really That's tough. It. Whether it be toward another, another group that's in the same situation, it, it happens. Uh, I, mm. I, you know, I'm not proud of it, but it's just a byproduct of, of where I've come from. It was my choice, though that when I started to realize what the, pro, you know, where it was coming from to, mm. to stop and just to go, no, it's not good enough. Like, you know, even now, even in, yeah. and just, and, and how subtle it can be in just in the way I think sometimes. And I'm forever having to beat that back and go, no, no, what are you talking about? That's just, that's just you. Yeah. All you're doing is racial profiling for what? It doesn't help you. It's just, it's ridiculous. Sure. right? <laughs> And yeah. so, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not yeah. immune to it, but, but it is, mm. it is. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's the key. I guess, I guess that kind of education or educating yourself is, is the turning point in a way. I mean, I, I feel that way also about toxic masculinity, right? Because yeah. we all grew up in a very patriarchal time, yeah. especially in the late eighties, early nineties, when society was so damn sexist as a young kid and in high school or primary school, you learn all kinds of awful stuff, yep. the homophobia, the kind of, you know, performance of masculinity is really vile mm -hmm. uh, or was vile in those days. And probably still, still is. is. I can, um, I can tell you yeah, how it still exactly. is <laughs> for sure. So I don't think there is, you know, I don't think you can come through that kind of conditioning just naturally being the good one. You have to educate yourself. Yeah. You have to unlearn some of the things that you learned as a kid that you would that you got from your peers in high school, you know, which you took from the awfully sexist movies and shows that you all can and comics that you were consuming yeah, all the yeah. time. Right. And so I feel as though, yeah, it's, it's not easy, but, but everyone has to do the work to kind of unlearn some of the toxic crap that, that we grew up with. If we want to be better people, it's as simple as that, you know, and I hope to, I hate to sound like I'm finger wagging, but I, you know, I just think, there's no good or bad people, just people who worked on yeah. on themselves in that way. Yeah. I, and that's where I, I think I've I've uh, rested my hope on on this new generation new generation of kids because oh, yeah. I look at what they're doing and it's it's absolutely remarkable the way that they they, they look to each other and um, yep. and the way they support each other uh, in in the general sense. You know, it, it, I'm sure that there are outliers and there are always people out there who, mm. who wish 
to actively do harm and or, or think a certain way because of whatever conditioning that they've received um, or education or lack thereof. But uh, I, I'm heartened to see, particularly let's say in the comics community, how a lot of these indie creators are coming through and, and creating some remarkable stuff. Yeah. You know, just amazing. Yeah, stuff. I yeah, agree. Yeah. yeah, and it's and it's so good to I see. Agree. So good to see. So yeah. as long as we can get over the hump of the world actually dying itself, I think I think the hum, <laughs> the human race has a lot of you know there's a lot of hope built up in in where where things are going societally with a lot, with a lot of these younger kids. Mm, yeah, yeah, definitely. Whenever I do workshops uh, with high school kids, I do come out of it feeling like ah, oh, I hope they have a chance. <laughs> you know, I hope they they get their chance because yeah they're 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 amazing like we have come a long way yeah you know so there is some some signs for hope for sure absolutely you're listening to graphic nature we'll return right after this short message hi hope you're enjoying the podcast if you haven't already please subscribe to graphic nature on whatever podcast service you use uh maybe even rate it while you're there uh it'd be great if you could throw us some likes and or follow us on facebook instagram and uh, twitter as well for more info, check out the website, graphicnature.media. I appreciate you listening. Uh, thanks again, and enjoy the rest of the episode. And now that we're on to hope, let's let's visit um, Still Alive. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to do? Well, I mean, it took about five to six years, but I see it as like the culmination of the last 10 years. Um, ever since I started going into the Villawood Detention Centre with Refugee Art Project, which is the group that I started with some friends, mm-hmm. which is a non-profit community organization which just supports people of an asylum seeker or refugee background basically through art workshops and social you know occasions to express themselves and in collaboration with them um, taking some of the work and putting it in exhibitions or in zines or online to try and educate the public about the refugee issue so that's the kind of mission of that organization that really became a passion project for me over many years like it's I've really it really inspired me to see people who'd never made art before and who don't even think of themselves as artists Mm -hmm. grabbing a pencil and drawing and developing something and expressing themselves and doing stuff which was really raw and powerful and a lot of the stuff that we did together in Villawood that which they were doing was really awesome and that kind of I was getting back into comics anyway and that was sort of one of the inspirations to do Villawood, which then, of course, became Still Alive right. um, back in 2015. I was, I guess I was going to Villawood for about four years before the comic became a thing, but it was a sort of natural outgrowth of the creative community that had developed through Refugee Art Project. Yeah. So I kind of see it as all, you know, organically coming from that community work. Well, that, that, that's an amazing thing. So you start off doing the workshops and the crew there in the, in the, in the detention centers inspire you. And then, yeah, then yeah. you go on to create Villawood. That's also why actually um, still alive and Villawood have some examples of art, which isn't mine. Right. You know, some of the pictures that were done in Villawood at that time. Uh, and there's one in particular, uh, Maza in, in still alive is his name, albeit that's a pseudonym mm-hmm. uh, to protect his identity and protect his privacy but his artwork is in still alive Um, and he I remember when he did his first drawing back in 2011 first ever drawing and he straight away he had his own style which became this really intense black and white graphic thing that he got into Mm -hmm. 
And so he's the one who did this drawing of the world sort of tied up in a boat, which is um, in Still Alive. So mm -hmm. I feature a bit of his artwork. And he did this powerful series of really intense black and white knots, which were kind of evoking the problems he had, like rope kind of tied yep. up in knots. Yep. And so, yeah, that stuff really uh, inspired me. And it was great to sort of include that in the book as a, as a sort of creative collaboration. So it's not only my voice telling their stories, if you like, yep. and still alive, but also including some of their self-expression um, in the graphic novel was really important. Um, and I should point out one other thing that inspired me was an organization in India called Comics Power. Right. Um, founded by a guy called Sharad Sharma. And they're amazing. They, they also kind of inspired me in those days because they go to tribal areas. They talk to low caste people in India. They've done workshops in neighboring Pakistan and Bangladesh as well. They go into women's prisons. They talk to um, people who are generally marginalized mm -hmm. and do these workshops where over a few days they teach them to do their own black and white single page stories wow and so you've got you know fishermen talking about the company that's poisoned their fishing waters and this is the sort of thing which they can photocopy quite easily and stick in the town square right so it's like comic activism that helps marginalized people tell their narratives and bring up the issues they want to talk about. In Pakistan, they had comics by young girls talking about the threat of, of the Taliban who were threatening them if they continued to go to school, you know, or women in a prison in Karachi talking about their issues in this women's jail. Amazing stuff, um, <clears throat> you know, remarkable. viewpoints that you simply would never be exposed to. So that, that organization also really inspired me to do that in Villawood. So I, I introduced like single page comic narratives and some of the comics that came from that also were really inspiring, were really strong. And I think there's one, one or two bits of those also in Still Alive as well. Were you drawing while you were there or was it you were visiting and then coming back and then working on, on, on the book, on the, on the art and the story oh yeah i was drawing there drawing with people some panels are actually drawn in the detention center at the start i uh, described going into the visitors area which happened when i first visited back in 2011 so villawood has since been renovated but this was the old visitors area which i visited in 2011 and there's a picture from there which shows a tree with corrugated iron and spikes around it Jesus. to stop intended to stop people from climbing it so that they wouldn't self-harm, climb it and jump oh, off, right. basically. Yeah, you're right. And that was drawn on site. That was drawn on location. I just sat there and drew that tree. Wow. And that's in the graphic novel. So there are some little bits which were drawn on site. Wow, that's remarkable. Jeez. That's 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 real fucking heavy, dude. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. It's I guess part of the challenge of Villawood and Still Alive was to sort of try and communicate how surreal this alternative world is of, of incarceration within Australia's detention system. It's like you step from, a, from Sydney, from Western Sydney, into this detention centre in Villawood, and suddenly you're in a completely different legal zone where no one has any rights, they've committed no crimes, they're locked up for five or six years, some of them, 
they can't leave, they can't go back to their own countries, they can't get family reunion, they can't work, they can't earn money. They're just sitting in empty rooms, not hearing from case managers for a year, thinking they've forgotten, being, being called by a number and not their, their name. And just how surreal that twilight world is, you know, um, which, which most Australians have no concept of, you know, how cruel and dehumanizing the whole system is. So, yeah, Still Alive tries in a small way to, to communicate that. And I say in a small way because there's a lot of stuff that didn't make it in the book, which is awful. Like there were certain things I downplayed because, um, yeah, you know, like, it's, it's almost the tip of the iceberg, but you can only put so much horror in, in a book like that at the same time. So did you, did you think about revisiting like with, with the new, with the new publication uh, and the, the renaming, did you think about putting some of that stuff in like back in or? or... Oh, so basically, yeah. So basically Villawood was the webcomic which get up published in 2015 and it's pretty small. Yeah. Most of that went into still alive. Little bits were cut out. But even then, that was just a, that's a very small part of what Still Alive right. is. Basically, with Still Alive, I thought, okay, this is a graphic novel. I want this to, to have multiple chapters that address different things. Mm -hmm. Like I wanted to talk about the legal process. Yep. I wanted to talk about the situation of mental health and healthcare in detention centers. That was when I made a friend in Manus Island through Facebook who agreed to kind of talk about how he was going on Manus. So then that became a chapter on offshore processing. Mm -hmm. And so Still Alive became this greatly expanded thing. Was Villawood originally, was it commissioned by GetUp or was it something that you were already working on and you got, got it published? Yeah, it, it was commissioned by GetUp. So okay. they, they did a crowdsourcing venture called The Shipping News mm -hmm. where they got people to, they basically crowdsourced a pool of money which then went into alternative journalism about the refugee issue. Oh, and so okay. that was like a call out. So I pitched my comic and said, oh, I'd love to do a web comic, you know, based on going to Villawood and all of that. And so that got green lighted by GetUp, which was great. So that was the kind of motivation to do that web comic. Um, and that was the one which won a Walkley Award in 2015 in the artwork category. And it was around that time that 12 panels press approached me and said, you know, would you consider publishing this as a graphic novel? And I was like, yep, I should, but I'll have to really expand on it. And of course I said it would take me a year and a half. It ended up taking five and a half years. Did 12 panels press, did they have an editor or were you self editing? Like how was, how did an actual book uh, come together? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So there's three of them. They're a small micro press. They'd only published one book before my one, which was called The Salty River by a German guy That's right. who did a graphic novel about his trek around the through the Australian. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, and I think they didn't commission that one. I think he'd already done it and they translated it into English because it's said in Australia, it's like an Australian book yep. um, as well. And so that was their first um proper book and then and their mission is to create quality Australian graphic novels but because they're a micro press it'll take them you know they're doing one at a time each book might take a number of years but it's a very noble you know aim and so I was really really you know flattered and glad to have 
uh, Erica Wagner, Liz McFarlane, and Bernard Calio, who are 12 Panels Press behind me, basically, for this. They, they did help me with the editorial stuff. Once I actually had a draft and a whole bunch of pages and a lot of written pages, that was from there they started to give me a bit of feedback and in the in the final stages they did help me a lot with cutting things out right. and trimming some of the fat to make it into a more cohesive narrative mm -hmm. i think the biggest issue that came up in editorial terms was the fact that there were bits of the comic where i really was just lecturing the reader <laughs> like hectoring the reader you know because i was so angry i was so angry about this stuff but there were pages where it's like you should feel fucking ashamed <laughs> <laughs> yeah. by what your country is doing mm -hmm. and i don't know if that's always the best approach so they, they actually got me thinking about that a little bit there were some pages which i think ended up on the cutting room floor because they were too shrill um but i i see that as also a natural process of me trying to grapple with how to tell that story i mean to this day i'm angry if i could grab the reader by the by the collar and <laughs> slap them a few times i would um so, so yeah things like that so they did certainly help me with shaping the, the finished work which which i really needed because it was my first long form graphic novel right so i mean this was all new new stuff for me and it did definitely helped me thinking in terms of an effective narrative and how to really land things but without lecturing you know the poor reader and that sort of thing <laughs> a good lecture every once in a while is a good thing <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> i will do something with those rejected pages i will probably still make a shrill angry comic <laughs> z you know um <laughs> Yeah, so that was that was great. It was a long process and it was many years of just me working alone. But I think if I didn't have that contract saying I'm going to deliver a graphic novel, I don't think I would have done it. Like I needed that hanging over me yeah, right. to sort of push me to do it because it was a long and difficult process. It's a very tough subject. There were moments where I just thought, oh, you know, this is too hard, too dark too heavy i don't feel equipped to tell all of these this this awful stuff but um ultimately i yeah it was good to have that as an as a motivating thing as well did you have did you run any parts of the story by anybody else possibly someone who may not have an interest in comics and and to get some sort of feedback in terms of how you were going where you were going with it yeah little bits i would take specific chapters sometimes and run them mostly by friends who were also refugee supporters who knew that world mm -hmm. just to make sure I was getting it right. Yep. If that makes sense. Yep. Like, do you think the point is landing that I'm trying to make in this chapter? Is it really, does it line up with their experiences? Mm -hmm. So that was definitely one point of reference. Uh, and towards the end, I ran it by some legal friends, a friend who's written a book on refugee law. And that was really important just so that the legal stuff would be, rock solid and yeah. he gave me a little bit of feedback but it was also very encouraging because he was like yeah you know he he read the draft he said he read it in one sitting and then he said to me oh it's really heavy <laughs> and i thought why is it heavy for you you know this stuff you you work you've written a book about refugee law you know how bad it is you know but then i felt gratified that it had hit home mm -hmm. right yeah. so i mean that kind of feedback really mattered and then i did give it to some comic friends as well like 
do you think this is an okay comic? I guess I was a bit wary about showing it to too many people because yep. then you might just, you know, it becomes this big soupy broth yep. of feedback. So yep. a few friends who I really trusted definitely helped me along the way. Yeah, for all those different aspects. Speaking of uh, feedback broth, what were the uh, responses like to Villawood when it went up on SBS? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, a get up. When get up put it up. That was quite galvanizing, I think. That got got quite a lot of feedback just through social media, yeah. people sharing it on Facebook and that sort of thing. And I guess that was my first experience of doing something and it going out into the world and then seeing how it affects people, right? Mm-hmm. And seeing all these comments and going through all these comment threads. And as a creator, I found that very exciting because it's like, wow, it, it actually has... You know, now it has a life of its own. Yep. Now it exists in other people's minds when they read it, when they read it and take it in. And some of them love it and some of them are moved and some of them hate it. But for me, that was, I guess that's why you make art. It's, an, it's a fundamentally communicative act, I think. And so, yeah, seeing the response and particularly, I guess, the Walkley Award, getting the Walkley gave me a strong sense of validation. I think those little moments where you get encouragement mean a lot, particularly when you're really uncertain. Like there's no comics industry in Australia, right? There's no, there's no one banging on my door saying, here, we want to give you all this money to do your own comic. Just doesn't happen. And even with Still Alive, I got zero dollars yeah. effectively. I mean, there was a little forward payment, but for all the thousands of hours I put into it over five and a half years, you know, maybe that adds up to, two cents an hour or something of that nature. Let's so, let's not go into specifics. <laughs> yeah, okay. I don't want to I don't want to make your listeners too sad. Um, well well let's be honest. Let's get this straight. If people who love comics and who create comics at this stage don't re- haven't realized that there is no money in yeah, comics, true. you're in the wrong yeah, field. Of course. Exactly. Particularly your own little indie comics, right? <laughs> so um I did it because I loved loved it and believed in it and yeah, I guess the point was having that having that response and that feedback uh, really matters as an artist. It's what you really it's what you crave, and when you when you realise that you can affect people, that's that's strong motivation, at least for me, to keep going and to do more work. And the fanographics thing is another huge boost. Like, yeah, that is huge news. Ever since I got back into comics, particularly reading independent and underground comics, you know, I love clouds. I love Burns as Black Hole and all the stuff Fanographics have done over the years. Like they're just incredible publishers. So to get still alive on their radar was was massive for me. Like that's, you know, that's the kind of moral support that I need for now to try and build something resembling a career in the future. Fingers crossed, you know, but who knows, you know, if that will happen. I hope so. Well, you know what? I wish I wish it, I wish it for you, Safta. I wish it for you. But like anything, if you really love it, then you kind of find a way to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. The way I see it, the world is doomed probably <laughs> in the next few decades. So we really just have to do what we believe in, you know? Imagine that. Um, that that's probably the best takeaway from this conversation. <laughs> uh, that would be, imagine if everybody just did the things that would, that, that you know, made a beautiful impact yeah. on everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And life is short. That's something else I've realized, you know, when you go through your thirties and into, and I'm in my forties now, Mm -hmm. I realize, oh shit, I don't actually have 
who knows how much time I have left. So I better make the most of it. I was, trying, I was thinking know? the same thing uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was trying to figure out where the, the tip, the tipping point was between feeling that you're invincible and that you've got plenty of time to the point where it, where the sand just tips on the other <laughs> end and my time's now receding and mm. you know, I've got to, yeah. I'm not so invincible anymore. Definitely. For me, I mean, that happened, that kicked in about 10 years. Well, no, sorry. 16. No. <laughs> yeah. 20 coming up to 15, 16 years ago, I got Crohn's disease. Okay. Um, and that's been the big one that revealed my mortality to me, mm. <laughs> you know, and how unruly and out of control your own body can actually be yep. when you get a chronic illness, when you get sick, when you're getting chronic pain and injuries and all this stuff, which Crohn's disease has kind of unfortunately given me, that's also helped me focus on, okay, what do I really want to do? You know, what really matters? Um, yeah. So that, that's, that, that might've pushed things to the front as well. The touring of the book and, and the promotion of the book, you were slated to have a whole bunch of in-store appearances and, and to launch the book. And did you get to do any of them? I did one. One. Yeah, I did one lovely launch in Melbourne. It was the first event on my calendar of my planned book tour. Um, and then I had to flee Melbourne the next day because there was a COVID outbreak. That's right. And they... I think closed the border or, or we, you know, shutting Melbourne down the next, the next evening. So, um, but that was a really nice event. I got to chat with Maria Tamarkin, who's an incredible writer uh, about still alive and some of the issues, mm -hmm. you know, of, of dealing with difficult issues and a bunch of people came. And, and so, yeah, that was lovely. It was dream come true just to have that nice launch. So how's the, how's the book been received so far? Oh yeah, so far it's been great. A few people have contacted me who I don't even know, you know. Some of them are refugee supporters to say that it gels with them, mm -hmm. that they they find it a powerful, I hope a powerful tool for educating people. And so that really matters. One or two school teachers and librarians have said, you know, they're going to show it to the other teachers. They're going to try and get it in their library. And wow. one of my dreams is that hopefully it will be available to high school students or potentially in a you know social issues curriculum or something like that so yeah uh, that's the dream if it has some reach and some small speck of influence in terms of changing public opinion on the refugee issue then i'll be more than happy i hope it it reaches people in that context where what was the process of actually putting the book together now you did mention a, a little bit about uh you know where you were drawing some of it but when it came to a majority of the work, I'm assuming you were doing that uh, at home uh, or in an office yeah. kind of environment. Uh, what was, uh, how was, how was putting it together aside from all the editing that we spoke about already and, and speaking to 12, the crew from 12 panels press, uh, how was, how was the, uh, how did you do it? Were you, were you writing and drawing it as you were going or where, did you have a plan? Tell me about that whole process. Yeah, I pretty much, wrote it and drew it simultaneously so i don't know if i'm the sort of um, graphic novelist who's able to do a complete script and make it watertight mm -hmm. and then thumbnail everything you know so there's a visual draft and then go through those stages i've never done it that way mm -hmm. so i would essentially outline a chapter and then write the bits that i really 
you know, that make that up. So the important points, maybe break it down into four or five points. And then the text of those points would be thumbnailed as pages, mm -hmm. right? So doing the, the chapter on health in detention, for instance, I interviewed a few people, I put it all together, edited it, got the, got the sort of structure of that part yep. of that chapter, and then created some thumbnails based on the parts of that, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yep, yep, yep. So I would really just go four or five, four or five pages at a time in a way, wow. thumbnail those pages, then draw them and then go on to the next bit and then collate all it all to make that chapter, if that makes sense, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then do the other chapters. And so it was a very slow process, but for me, I mean, I think it touches on something because for me, making comics isn't just about you start with words and then you illustrate them. Yep. You know, there isn't a clear line between, oh, you get an idea, you write it down, then you draw it. It's not that simple. Mm -hmm. I think for me, there's a sort of dialogue that goes back and forth between the words and the images. Yep. So if I'm doing any comic before I've actually written the whole thing, I like to start drawing it right. and see how the, how the images feel and how the visual aesthetic is kind of unfolding mm -hmm. and, and how that kind of might affect the progress of the story, you know, or the, or the moods in, in the work. So for me, I think the fun part of doing a comic is, kind of juggling those different elements as they kind of unfold if that makes sense yeah it does were there ever any deviations because of the the way that you're the, the process that you're working in you know you were formulating five or six pages at a time uh kind of retooling it as as or repurposing as you needed did it ever kind of deviate anywhere that you thought oh i didn't even think of that or you know was that was that that kind of element particularly when you're drawing oh yeah definitely definitely maybe i would have a chapter sort of draft coming together mm -hmm. in terms of a bunch of pages but then they weren't hanging together properly you know so then i would find the glue that kind of brings it all together or maybe it needs a few introductory pages to sort of set the the theme so in a way and then new things would arise then i would really think yeah okay it's making this point but what am I really saying? Is there more to say about that issue? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. and it might not even be what I'm saying. It might be the text of an interview that I did with someone, yeah. you know, so I've recorded this and this that they said, but maybe that other thing is important too, or maybe the other, the, the, the first thing should be taken out and the last thing, you know, so there was a lot mm -hmm. of that kind of editing, which is about boiling it down and crystallizing what the chapter is about, you know, or what the point is that you're trying to make in that part of yeah, the book. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the book was difficult because it deals with very complex issues, mm -hmm. especially when I was trying to talk about the legal process that refugees face yeah. and how do you boil that down into concise visuals and some sort of narrative thread using different people's testimony in a way that makes it very clear for the reader, you know? Yeah, wow. Um, that's a real, I think that's a challenge, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, um, not just for, for comic artists, but academics too, because I used to be an academic. It was always a big challenge to take really complicated issues and ideas and actually simplify it and explain it in a way, you know, which is effective. And so a big challenge of Still Alive was that. So I guess the drawing and the writing and doing it all uh, together helped me in, in that process of, you know, 
trying to make something concise as well. That just sounds like a monumentous task. My wife has a saying that um, it doesn't matter how smart you are. If nobody can understand what you're saying, then it doesn't really matter what you're talking about. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, so, you know, so I'm apparently never clear on what I'm talking about, but, um, <laughs> oh, there's an issue that we're touching. <laughs> sure. um, yeah. I think one of the mistakes I made when, when the book was emerging was to try and tell everything as well. Mm -hmm. There was this fear that, oh, if I leave something out, I'm not doing justice, yep, you know, yep. to the whole issue. And maybe I even had a critical voice in my head saying, okay, you've described the enhanced screening process, but you didn't mention this, which happened on that date when the Australian government did this, yep. you know, and, and maybe you're letting the, letting the issue down by not including enough information. So there was that tough process of, of, you know, knowing what was enough. Mm -hmm. And, and it, maybe at the start, I wanted to do sort of tell, tell everything. And then I realized that's just going to overwhelm the reader. Yep. That's just going to flood them with, way too much information and they'll then they'll be able to handle so i guess when i say boiling down it really is like really tough tough uh process of you know trying to sort of yeah nut it out in an easy to comprehend way yeah 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 yeah. and and when it came to actually drawing it were you ah uh, yeah were you fond of a particular a style of pen or was it just anything that you could grab and and i've you know the most important thing is the image. It doesn't matter how I draw it. doesn't matter what fucking pen I use. You know, it doesn't matter where I'm sitting. I might've started that way. And the web comic of Villa Wood was a bit rough. Mm -hmm. Like it, it was using multiple like tools yep. in a, in a way. Back then I was experimenting with a Wacom. So there were little bits of that, which were even drawn on a tablet. Yep. But by the time I got to making still alive, I felt as though, for me, comic making is about the traditional mode of drawing. Yeah. You know, I love the tactile feeling of, of the, the pen and the ink mm -hmm. going on the page and the, the grain of the paper and, and having a work of art at the end of it. So all that was really important. So it was all drawn in sketchbooks, yep. A4 sketchbooks. Mm -hmm. Problem with that is, I think that was out of necessity because at the time I had a scanner which couldn't do large pages, yep. you know, yeah. I've corrected that now. Now I actually have an A3 scanner, so I can do A3 pages where I feel like I'm creating an entire total design. Mm -hmm. There are splash pages in Still Alive, which were obviously done, you know, in one page, yep. like in one A4 sketchbook oh, right. page okay. and scanned in where I tried to be detailed. But there are other cases where I would thumbnail the page and say, okay, there's six panels on this page and I would draw them separately in my sketchbook, just anywhere in the sketchbook yep. and then Photoshop them together and compose the page that way. Right. And then of course, add text and text boxes as a layer on top of all of that. Mm -hmm. And that was a bit painstaking. It's not. Sounds like it. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's not perfect. You know, it, there were times where it was like, Ah, oh, damn! I've drawn something really with a lot of detail, but it's 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 reduced in size to fit the page. But the now the line weight doesn't match yep. the other yeah, the right. other images, yep. so I've I've you know messed it up in that context. So I towards the end I was very conscious of trying to do everything at the correct size, so when it's scanned in and composed, it works. Yep. You know, 
as a as a design and on the page. So I was thinking more about line weight and creating a unified aesthetic yep. towards the end. The actual tools were just outliner pens. Basically, I just used marker pens, mm -hmm. outliner pens. I didn't really use a brush pen except when I was blocking in large areas yep. of black. Yep. Although I do love using brush pens, but not for Still Alive because Still Alive was, I guess, a documentary journalistic type project. I wanted to have a finer point yeah, right. sort of to try and be more detailed in certain areas, to try and be realistic in some instances, although the book also reaches for a lot of symbolism as well, you know? the With the idea behind the aesthetic design and the, the general cohesiveness of the style, uh, how much, if any, did you rework uh, the Villawood art that you included into Still Alive? Or did you leave it untouched? Oh, I did rework you a did? fair bit of it. Yeah, right. Yeah, Villawood to me felt more like a sort of underground comic. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was a bit rougher. Even the lettering was different. And so for this, I guess I just, yeah, there were certain bits that I redrew to make it fit still, to fit the book and the rest of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I tried not to be too tight. I hope the book still has an underground sensibility. I love work, which is intense mm -hmm. and of a very strong black and white graphic kind of nature. Mm -hmm. um, there were bits where I went for a sort of gray tone by using Photoshop, you know, one of the pixel pixelation type no, not pixelation. What am I saying? Gradient? A halftone, halftone type functions, yep. you know, where you can get that manga style texture oh, yep. or halftone yep, yep, to yep. create a nice gray. Um, so yes, I did use that a little bit. So there was a little bit of digital work, you know, um, for some bits, but by and large for me, I wanted it to just be very powerful uh, black and white work, which I think for me also fits into a long tradition of political cartooning, mm -hmm. you know, and comics that are very rough and direct and stark and confronting and subversive, yep. you know, yep. that political tradition of illustration mm -hmm. that goes back to people like Goya's Disasters of War and, and Doré's uh, Plates of London, you know, uh, the smog and the congestion and the poverty and that kind of social commentary that you find in illustration and comics. I wanted it to sort of be a part of that tradition. How much, uh, how much did uh, your, your previous life as an academic feature or, or help you in this, in this project? Um, that's a good question. I kind of wrestle with that a bit because when I do comics, the voice that comes through the omniscient narrator, which is my voice yeah. is a really nerdy academic <laughs> voice. <laughs> oh. And sometimes I think I'm, and there's a bit of that in Still Alive, and sometimes I think I'm being too academic, you know, or, but then at other times I think, you know, that's my freak flag, I should fly it and embrace it, you know, and maybe that's unique, maybe that's what makes a comic my comic, mm -hmm. is that it has my voice, yeah. so I'm sort of coming to that as a conclusion now, but yeah, in terms of, I guess, I guess, my academic past has helped in terms of research, mm -hmm. you know, and drawing on some of the more difficult or complicated issues, thinking about the politics of representation, which I try to raise in the book, yep. the way that refugees are viewed through a singular lens. Um, and often, even if, even if the way they're framed is sympathetic, they're often portrayed as victims, as sort of passive, helpless people who need 
quote unquote, our help or our support. And I think even that framing, though it often is done in a well-meaning way, can leave people feeling reduced, you know, and stripped down only to the status of a poor, helpless victim. And so I wanted to address all of those kinds of issues. And for that, I needed some of that nerdy academic voice, which is in there. I, I for one, uh, just just as a, as a side, I've never understood the idea of not allowing people uh, into the country, whether they're seeking asylum or not. And, and if, if they're coming from a place that's, that's destroyed their lives and they're coming essentially to the promised land or, or somewhere that's better than where they came mm. from, I don't understand why we wouldn't as a populace accept them, include them and, and wouldn't, I mean, I, if, if I was in that situation and someone extended their hand, I would be forever indebted and I would treat them like the, the best humans on the planet. And I've, I've never understood. It blows my mind that why wouldn't you mm. accept these people? They will then become taxpayers and ratepayers and, and people amongst society. And they may even help to integrate mm. other people from, from their backgrounds. It's just like, it's, it's yeah. like it boggles my mind. Why not? Like, what's yeah, the big fucking yeah. deal? Well, the, I guess that's the that's the million-dollar question. The moment this was really politicised, mm, I remember, <clears throat> like during the Howard era and a bit before that, during Labor mm -hmm. in the 90s, yep. um, essentially it's become this festival of fear and, and misconception and... Just look at what happened to the Vietnamese. They brought them in. Absolutely. And look at, look at yeah. what they've done here. <laughs> exactly. Just, I, yeah. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And it's mind-boggling now that with Afghanistan falling to the Taliban, yeah, we're still punishing Afghan refugees who came here fleeing the Taliban ten years ago. Yeah. Like they're here. They're they're the people who who in our organisation who I met in Villawood Detention Centre ten years ago. They're still on temporary visas, on the assumption that they're going to be sent back. Where's the point in that? Now the Taliban controls the country, and yet Scott Morrison cruelly said nothing will change for them. We're, we're not. We're going to keep punishing yeah, them. Look, so it's just cruel. It's just pointless. It's, it, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't. I, I have no words, and I don't <laughs> understand it. Because uh, to me, mm. it's just a simple thing. Give them a life yeah. here. And, you know, because, uh, and, and on some level, I look at it and I go, well, the people that are in detention centers now, they've been there for that long. Even if you let them in now, they're always going to, they're going to hold that. They're going to hold on to it. And it comes back to the first impressions thing we were talking about earlier is their first impressions mm. of Australia, a, a cruel community that is willing to lock them up and leave them there. Well, I think most of them make it, make the distinction. They realize it's a political game. And they know that most Australians, like the Australian people, the people they meet, certainly refugee supporters who they meet, who visit them in detention, people who support them on the outside, they know that, okay, the community is very different to the government yeah. and the government are playing this awful game, you know. Um, so, but I wouldn't blame them for being totally jaded. I think yeah. the sad consequence is it just damages people. Yeah. It results in long-lasting lifelong trauma mm -hmm. when you're subjected to detention treated like a criminal and then you're the worst part is their families suffer they might be in detention for years their families may be in third countries or in the home country waiting under the impression that the yeah. guy would come work earn the money 
bring the wife and kids to follow. And then when they're in limbo for five or six years, that's just absolute psychological destruction. Jeez. They can't support their family. In some cases, the wife and kids become homeless yeah. or they're, they're assaulted or family members are killed. And then they're still stuck in a detention center. Sometimes they beg to be sent back and they're not allowed to, you know, the government won't do it because it's like, you don't have a visa, you, you know, you got to wait on this in endless process. And that, that just breaks them. Yep. You know, people don't really recover from that kind of trauma. So it's just sad that, mm -hmm. and, if, and in the long run, Australia will have to pay a lot of compensation for the damage and the abuses that are, that are going on. So yeah, ridiculous. Now with, with still alive being, uh, being done and pres you know, fully finished, printed, ready to go. Mm. What's, what's next? Oh yeah. I think, um, well now I'm just throwing myself into the next, the next big one, mm -hmm. I guess. Yep. So a bit early to talk about it because okay. these things usually take a few years, yeah. but I think it'll be more autobiographical stuff. Great. I'm, um, and this time I'm using a brush and I'm using larger pages as in drawing yep. entire A3 size pages, mm -hmm. scanning them on my A3 scanner and really loving that, you know, so. So that's already underway. Yes. Great. Yep. All right. I feel like I don't want to stop making comics. I feel there's no burnout so far. Mm -hmm. So I'm just loving the creative process, you know, and, and I'm thankful for every day I get to draw basically. Uh, and uh, very, and before we kind of wrap up, cause it is getting close to that time. The, uh, are you still dabbling in your academic work at all? Or is that just now you've just, that's on a shelf? Oh, yeah. Yeah, now and then um, write the odd article for things, mm -hmm. which is nice. I wrote an academic essay just about the kind of work which I see emerging around me uh, over the last few years, mm -hmm. which I think is very interesting because Australian comics have suddenly become quite diverse. Yes, very diverse. Whereas they weren't so diverse in the past. <laughs> and I think that's you know fantastic to see yep. um so yeah i do like to to write about cultural issues i do want to keep writing you know in the future i want to write more about horror you know and and what it means to me and the the history of it as mm -hmm. well so yeah i'd love to i'm always a nerd i think i'll always be reading and researching <laughs> something <laughs> that, that, that is great uh, i wish you all the best with this new project and and i'm and i'm glad they're still alive uh is is out thank you so much uh safta it has been a pleasure yeah honored oh the honor is mine man yeah pleasure pleasure great to chat again safta thank you so much for coming yeah, in sure. and talking yeah. about the book and, and your experiences uh creating it as well as uh at villawood uh and your continuing uh a love of comics and, and what you bring to the medium and particularly to the industry to the scene i should say here because we don't really have an industry yet Thanks so much, Lauren. No, thank you, man. Thank you. Thanks, Safta. Bye. See you, bud. Bye. Bye. Uh, that's the end of this episode of Graphic Nature. Thanks for listening. If you could please rate and review the show on whatever podcast service you use, it'll be greatly appreciated. If you have any thoughts regarding the show, feel free to send an email to feedback at graphicnature.media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And for more information about the show, visit Graphic Nature on the web by typing into your web browser or search engine, graphicnature.media. Thanks very much. And until next time, enjoy the comics you read and read the comics you enjoy. Thanks very much. Credits. Written, produced, and presented by Zoran Ilyevsky. Editing and audio production, Sean O'Reilly. Additional editing, Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio consultation, 
Archie Cuthbertson, Dan Moore. Credits announcer, Simon Winkler. Theme character voices, Zorin Ilyevsky. Audio excerpts of Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, Wortham vs. Gaines on Decency Standards, used courtesy of New York City Municipal Archives. You've been listening to Graphic Nature, the podcast.